Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. My guest for today's show is Wayne Peters. Wayne is the founder and chief investment officer of Peters McGregor Capital Management in Sydney. His firm specialises in investing in global share markets. I was thrilled when Wayne agreed to appear on the show because his journey to investing is both highly unconventional and impressive. After leaving school, Wayne became an athlete in Europe, then a businessman at the age of 23. He has held senior leadership positions at many iconic companies, including as a long-serving director of jeweller Michael Hill. As you listen to his story, Please keep in mind that Peters McGregor holds less than 30 positions in its portfolio, with an average holding period of more than five years, meaning his team need only produce a handful of new investment ideas each year, so the depth of their research is impressive, to say the least. We start with Wayne's experiences after he graduated from Townsville's Pimlico High School. Pimlico High School was in Townsville where I I grew up. I always had an interest in business and what made businesses run and, you know, the products they provided and... Um, how they drove a large part of the economy. Um, I, my first job was in, you know, working coals and then uh, selling programs down at the football. And that was when I was, um, you know, eight and nine years of age. Um, but when I left school, I did a traineeship in book retailing. So, and I studied business at uh, James Cook University at night. So, yeah, the interest in business and um, especially retail grabbed my attention very early on. Um, I then moved to Germany when I was 19. Uh, lived there for four years, the last couple of years in West Berlin. And that was prior to the, to the war coming down. So I learned German and um, got a much broader sense of uh, economies in different countries, the social networks and how different countries tackled different issues. And my uh, first share investments occurred during that period um, in some Australian businesses, uh, some European businesses. And, you know, when I look back now, I really didn't understand what I was buying. But um, my interest was certainly there. And... Uh, I think in any area that you look to in take, you know, follow or endeavours in life, the number one thing uh, that's always helpful is just to be curious. And, um, you know, I had a curious mind and so I read a lot. Reading certainly is, uh, I think, it's critical to most professions, but certainly to investing. If you're not prepared or you don't enjoy re- reading and you're not curious, then investing won't be uh, a subject that you'll excel at. Okay, and so at 23, you launched into your own retail business and became a business owner. Why was Australian retail so appealing at the time and why did you want to own your own business? Well, 
I mean, other than the fact that I had my grounding, uh, the, the, my uh, training in book retailing, in those days we had high inflation. And so the number one game in town was to borrow other people's money and invest it in property. Uh, to do that or do it on a larger scale, you needed a, a cash flow. And so retail is what I'd been trained in. And so I just uh, set about uh, while I was in Germany to save enough money together to start a business. I didn't know what that business was going to be. Um, I thought maybe of some type of franchise business where I was able to leverage off the expertise of a greater organisation. And when I returned to Australia in 1983, I took on my first business here in Melbourne, uh, out of Airport West, uh, in a as uh, in, a, in a photographic store. And this was just at the time that you had the new technology of these processing machines which allowed people to develop their films in one hour. And I mean, in today's age where you mm. have phone, you know, your photos on your mobile phones, it's a, it's very, uh, it seems very old, uh, last century, which it was. But in those days, people generally had to wake a, wait a week to get their photos developed. And all of a sudden, this technology allowed you to see them in an hour. So um, it was all the rage, it was growing very strongly. And I thought, because I had a personal interest in photography, I thought this would be something for me. But other than that, I had no idea about the economics of the business. I didn't understand how technology, um, the benefits of technology tend to go through to the end user, the middleman or the retailer, um, unless they have some form of monopoly or patent over that technology, can only glean a margin for so long. And in the years that I operated the photographic business, I, d I developed keener insights into how that economic model worked, where technology played a large role. And of course, as I grew that chain of photo stores, I was able to observe new products coming to the market. And Canon in 1989 brought out the first digital camera. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the digital camera as we know it today. It was a large box which you would plug in the back of your TV right? Okay. Um, but you didn't need silver halide technology and you certainly didn't need my store to uh, to be able to view your, your photos and when I saw that I thought this is not going to be very good for my business so um, after you know building a chain of these stores um, under the brand Kodak Express um, I made a decision in 1989 that uh, this was the time to sell and I s sold the business and as it turned out, it was a good time to sell, but f not for the reasons that I envisaged. Digital photography didn't come along and make a, you know, a marketable impact uh, until about 15 years later. But um, at that stage, Kodak was the second most valuable brand in the world. It had two and a half thousand highly qualified scientists in silver halide technology, but it was almost like the old buggy manufacturers. Mm. They were the best in their game until technologies changed the game. And it was interesting that in 1991, Bill Gates came out and said, Kodak is toast, mm. uh, two years after I sold the business. There were other dynamics going on in the, in the retail marketplace, uh, which meant it was a good time to sell. But um, as they say in business, if you can choose between being lucky and being smart, you pick the lucky every time. Absolutely. So you sell the business and presumably you've got some money to invest. What were the next steps? What, were you contemplating getting back into business or wh what were you reading that made you want to start 
investing this money in other ways? Well, I, I, I was a ferocious reader during those, uh, those years as well. But in 1989, I came across uh, The Intelligent Investor. In many regards, the Ben Graham um, Bible or introductory mm. book for anyone who's interested in understanding the dynamics of markets, uh, valuing businesses, and how to go about investing in the public markets. And as soon as I read that book, the light went on for me to, you know, direct me to where I wanted to, you know, um, you know, move forward in my life, um, what type of profession I wanted to pursue. Um, and of course, I, I developed a nest egg after selling the photographic business. And so I simply took that and started investing in publicly listed shares in a much broader way than I had done previously. I went back, did an MBA. Um, I was always much more interested in, and, you know, from having managed businesses and managing people, coming more at it from the business perspective as opposed to the theoretical perspective of how investing is done. And that business background, I think, held me, uh, and, and still does, uh, held me in very good stead in the early years because when you invest in shares, you're actually investing in a business. And so rather than viewing those investments as pieces of papers or, or numbers on a, on, on a piece of paper, uh, if you understand you're owning a part of a business and then taking all the steps in your due diligence to analyzing that business prior to making the investment, as I'd done uh, with the photographic businesses and as I would do through the 90s, just leads you to a much better insight uh, and conviction to allow you to buy an attractive price and then switch the market gyrations off from day to day because it's those gyrations which tend to send people into crazy spells of making poor decisions, i.e. buying high, selling low, and understand that businesses take time to develop. They're not short-term fixes. And if you can find a business with good, strong competitive economics run by management that have a lot of skin in the game and are competent, then the money is made in, in the sitting and in the waiting. So you buy today, we won't buy a position in the portfolio today unless we're prepared to own it for 10 years or longer. And that time frame, we call it a time frame arbitrage because mm -hmm. the market is so short term, gives us a massive advantage. Everyone talks long term <laughs> until the price moves against them. Um, and that's where having the conviction and the understanding of what you own gives you the confidence either to add more to your position if the price is attractive or just forget about the price movement. But without that conviction, um, you're lost. Absolutely. So it sounds like the old Buffett quote rings true that you're a better investor because you're a businessman and a better businessman because you're an investor. I was hoping you could explain the investment process in a little bit more detail at Peters McGregor and perhaps we can start with a 30,000 foot view. What do you aim to achieve and then we'll, we'll, we'll look under the hood and dig into it a little bit more. Well, understanding or analysing a business, you need certain frameworks. And, and Graham gave us that. Um, and of course, his disciple, um, Buffett, but there were a, a, a number of disciples that came from Graham. Schloss was another tremendous uh, value investor mm -hmm. who operated well into his 90s. I had the good fortune of meeting him when he was about 93. Yeah. Um, and 
the interesting thing, and, and Buffett wrote a piece called The Super Investors from Graham and Doddsville, and what was interesting was you had this cohort of people that you know had the right mindset, were curious, uh, were mathematically and analytically sharp, and they had been trained under Graham at Columbia. And interestingly enough, their performances over very long periods of time were significantly better than the index. Mm. So um, they weren't outliers, um, and they, they'd all built their approach to investing on the same building blocks that Graham had outlined. So anyone interested in getting into the field, you know, that book particularly, and then those that are m- more devote security analysis, which, which was the book he wrote in, in 1929 uh, and has been published, I think, now seven or eight editions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've, every time I go back and read a new edition, it's like going back and cleaning the windscreen. It, 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 it takes you back to first principles and ensures that you're not taking shortcuts on your analysis uh, and not being forgetful of very important steps in that process. So it's not that it's a complicated process, but it's not easy because not only requires that framework to be utilised, but it requires you as a, as a person to have the right temperament. And I think temperament over just about every other aspect is the most critical component to be a, a successful long-term investor. Because if you're going to be taken by the whims and the psychology of the market, you're going to fare a lot, lot worse than if you can shut off from that market. As Ben Graham described when he structured that character, Mr. Market, Mr. Market's there to be used if he's offering you an extremely attractive price for a business or a, or a silly expensive price for the business, you can take advantage of that. But if you listen to him to set the price of what you think the business is, is, is worth, then you'll be lost. So the process is built on a mathematical, analytical structure, but it brings in psychology, temperament, and also the requirement to understand how those businesses sit in the greater environment, what their short-term and long-term competitive positions are likely to be. And seeing this and understanding it can only be built by a very broad-based reading. It sounds to me that the way that you have set up the investment process overall favours capital preservation and appreciation. Well, that's after. that's the number one rule. Yeah. You know, yeah. don't lose money <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget number... And rule number two, don't forget rule number one. Um, it, it, it's Capital preservation is, is our first priority uh, simply because if, if, if you lose 20% of your money, you're down to 80% and you have to make 25% return after tax to get mm-hmm. back to where you started from. So the percentages work against you on the downside. Um, And of course, compounding even at small levels over time is very, very powerful. Mm. And if you can compound anything, you know, even even at a say an eight or 10% rate of return, which is very attractive over the long term compared to most other risk assets, then investing in businesses will um, in that one lifetime be be hugely valuable. I think the value investing book with Bruce Greenwald, I believe. Yes. Many of the 
investor's profile in that book, the first step was not losing money. Mm. And then they each went in their separate yeah. directions. So, so capital preservation, um, and Graham developed this concept of margin of safety. So his, his, his approach was, you know, in the first instance, you analyze the balance sheet, you, you look at the debt levels, you look at the strength of the assets, um, and then you look at the earning capacity. Um, of course, in, in, in the later decades, uh, the likes of Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, uh, especially Charlie Munger, because he, he adopted the, and picked up on that, uh, uh, on that concept quite early, that goodwill can be as valuable and sometimes much more valuable than the actual hard assets of a business. And we're certainly seeing that in today's age where the likes of you know, a Facebook uh, or a Google can be worth half a trillion dollars or more. Certainly the goodwill in those businesses, driven by their competitive dynamics of the business, aren't hard assets. They're just the, um, let's put it, um, you know, the goodwill, the the knowledge, and how the business operates and comes together on the new technology. So let's look under the hood a little bit um, with presumably thousands of companies globally. Mm. Uh, your investment universe is quite broad and indeed a lot broader than what we would have here at home. Take me through a little bit how you, you filter that and how you get down to a, a universe that is suppose more reasonable for you and your team to manage well uh, well certainly the opportunities um, are much much broader the world markets are about 50 times the size of the Australian market so by definition if you find 10 opportunities in Australia you, you know you're going to find 500 around the world we have very strong criteria of what we're looking for we run a um, quite a focused portfolio of 20 to 30 positions so we don't need to find a lot and we don't have to find them often if we own them for the long period but we need to be very diligent on the um, the criteria that we're looking for so we're looking for businesses that have proven their worth in the past but by our assessment those competitive advantages are going to remain looking forward they need to be well financed so that you know the banks can't take the wind out of their sails when they have the opportunities in front of them and they need to be run by competent management that are incented to act like shareholders. In our current portfolio, we have a very large portion of companies that are owner-managed, uh, founder-owned businesses that we believe have those prospects, but with founders that have a large amount of skin in the game and are going to run the business for the long term in the best interest of the shareholders. So. That type of structure is how we go about looking for these businesses in the first instance. We have a watch list of just over 250 businesses that we've built up over the last two decades that meet our criteria. So in theory, we would be happy to own all those businesses if they were offered in the market at, at an attractive price. And when I talk about attractive price, we use discounted cash flow um, as a long-term shareholder, the only way we get paid back is by the free cash flow that comes out to us and is available to us as a shareholder. Now, management have different options of what they do with that free cash flow, and this is where management's importance comes into the role in assessing an investment opportunity. Management can take that free cash flow after the business has looked after its own requirements and decide to give it back to the shareholder by way of uh, share buybacks 
or by way of dividends. The preference of either of those two options are generally driven by the tax structures in from country to country. In, in the US, for example, share buybacks are um, more tax advantaged than uh, dividends, mm-hmm. where in Australia we have franking credits, so dividends are more favourable than share buybacks. But that's a tax uh, issue and it's easy to understand what drives that. Um, and, then I'll, and then as a third option, management can take that money and try and grow the business organically. Sometimes that leads to rack and ruin because they don't have the opportunity. They just want to try and grow the pie larger because if they don't have a lot of skin in the game then the remuneration that they earn the pay they get is very important and of course if you're managing a bigger pie you tend to be able to justify especially to the um, remuneration consultants a larger pay packet Um, and then the fourth way of utilizing that free cash flow um, positively or negatively towards the to the shareholder is by way of acquisition and I suspect um, the record would suggest the money spent on acquisition on average has has cost the shareholders mm-hmm. dearly rather than benefited. So again, having management with uh, that have that owner founder type of mentality with a lot of their own money in the game ensures that they're more likely to make the right decision when it comes to that capital allocation process. Uh, they're not going to make acquisitions unless they truly believe um, it's going to be uh, a value accretive to the shareholder, uh, namely themselves and the other shareholders. So that's type of how we think about, you know, the overall structure in what we're looking for. Of course, there are many industries where we have no particular advantage or insight, and we don't really understand what those dynamics are. And obviously, as you grow older and have more experience, you can grow your understanding. Um, we. Call that your circle of competence, but what's more important than knowing a lot of businesses is how well you define that circle of competence, and it doesn't have to be large, as long as you stay within it. Um, and sometimes it's easy to step over the line. And when I look back at the mistakes I've made over the years, it's when I've stepped over that line unwittingly um, and thought I've understood the the circumstances and dynamics of the business, and I haven't really understood that. Um, that's when I've got in the most trouble. So obviously, you know, as you go on and you have certain experiences and you continue your broad reading, you will grow that circle of competence. And hopefully if you're, you know, curious and attentive, you you will grow that circle of competence. But what's most important is that you stay within it. And the 250 companies we have on our watch list currently are business that we believe are within our, our um, circle of competence. Um, and we really try to stay within that. Coming back to temperament, uh, one thing I think it's very, very advantageous to have in the investing world is to not allow envy to drive your um, decision-making processes. And envy has been, I think, you know, the one emotion that has caused a lot of money to be lost. I've never been concerned about other people making money in areas that I don't understand. If they can make money in areas that they understand that I don't, all, 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 all the best to them. And I'm, I'm happy for them. Where I get, I, I get frustrated, I guess, is when I've looked at opportunities, I've understood the lie of the land and the, the economic models of those businesses. 
and I've been able to justify that the prices are very attractive and I just haven't made the decision. So my errors lie you know, clearly on the commission side but also on the omission and I would, uh, I would guess that my errors of omission have been much, much greater than those of commission. So in a sense, I've been probably too conservative when I look back over my investing lifetime. I think uh, it was Charlie Munger that said, you can forget about envy because it's the only one of the sins that you'll never get any pleasure from well, at that, all. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> he has a great way of, 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 of you know, putting things in the, in the sunlight. <laughs> but it's true, and, and it's, um, I still think uh, today people whether you're an investor or not, just in, in, in the way you live your general life, um, if you can live your life without envy, you're going to have a much richer mm. and, a, and a much happier life because there's simply no upside to envy. Um, it's generally all downside. Absolutely. So we've been through the process of refining the, the universe and, and, and getting our hands in some great businesses. How do you decide then when it's time to, to exit a position or leave? Because it's my understanding that the, the fund will hold positions for a very long time and watch those businesses as grow and the thesis play out. Is it as simple as your intrinsic value is exceeded or a thesis break? Yeah, so we have four key um, criteria tells us when we exit a position. My, before I get into those four, my, you know, my, my preference is to never sell a position. Mm -hmm. And if I look back at the mistakes that I've made, um, the majority have simply been selling those positions too early. Um, as I said, we're conservative in our valuation approach. We use a d discounted cash flow uh, structure in determining what we prepare to pay for a business and what it's worth. And because the metrics we use in those DCFs are conservative by nature, the valuations are conservative. So that helps us protect the capital on the downside, but it also uh, you know, at times sees us miss um, you know, quite a bit on the mm -hmm. upside um, because if your analysis is right and you've picked the right company, then the best time to sell that business, if it, meet, if it, you know, if it continues to meet the, the, um, the expectations, is really never. Even if it gets to full value, it's generally um, wise not to sell it. But our four criteria for selling is firstly valuation. So once something reaches our um, assess valuation, and that's not static. Valuations are fluid, and as new information comes to us, we will reassess the valuation and change our valuation. Um, so the number one criteria is we'll sell on valuation. Um, the second one is if our thesis changes in a negative way. Obviously, you're always trying to review your thesis and spending time looking at the reasons people think the investment you're, you're holding uh, is overvalued. So especially among short sellers, I, I think it's very, very constructive. Humans have a bias to look for uh, confirming evidence. I've trained my thought processes and those of our teams to be as focused on disconfirming information. And in many regards, that exercise, you know, when you're looking at disconfirming information, it alerts you to aspects of the business that you may not have considered before. And also, when you spend time on thesis of short sellers, it helps you strengthen your, uh, you know, your long thesis generally. Because if you can't stand up and argue why they're wrong mm. or why 
on 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 weighted probabilities they're wrong, that would suggest your long thesis isn't as strong as it should be. So those processes I think are very, very important. The third reason we'll sell a business is if management changes for the worst. Clearly you're looking for businesses where the management aren't so important, but the competitive landscape these days has got so strong that management, I believe, are more important than ever not only from how they operate and compete in the business world, but also how they allocate the capital. So if management changes for the worse, we'll sell a position. And then the last reason we'll sell a position is if we're fully invested and we find a better idea. But of course, there are risks around that as well. You're you're running the risk that you're valuing the business correctly, and if you're undervaluing it significantly, you're running the risk of exiting too early and realising a taxable gain generally and then there's the compounded risk of having to redeploy that capital risks are everywhere and I mean that's just our game uh, having to assess those on a daily basis I guess the fewer decisions you make the lower your risks become of course so if you've made you know that's that's why the hard work up front is very very important because if you make the right decision in selecting the, 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 the company even if the price you paid um, is a little high if it has the long-term fundamentals, high return on equities, you know, all the standard metrics that you look for in a, in a, a business that has competitively entrenched advantages, then a lot of those things of valuations disappear over time because the longer you hold your investment, the longer your return, the, the closer your return moves towards the return on invested mm-hmm. uh, equity in that business. I think um, the old saying that patience doesn't lose your money is an important one when you're buying well, and investing. Yeah, I mean, um, patience is very important. And the market, especially with the news these days and the advent of these, you know, uh, the internet and the mobile devices, is news is proliferating at an astounding rate. Fake news wasn't really a term <laughs> 10 years ago, probably not even five years ago. But there is an enormous amount of um, noise in the marketplace and as an investor in today's age learning how to filter out that noise uh, and and sticking to that discipline is very very important because otherwise you'll be hoodwinked more often than not into exiting a position or reassessing your thesis incorrectly and I think the number one goal that I wake up with every morning is I'm just trying to, you know, I'm only up against one person, and that's myself. I'm not up against anyone else, and I'm just trying to improve my processes in thinking as they, you know, occur to me. And I think, you know, if you have a lifetime where, you know, of continuous learning and trying to just improve the way you think about things and how just the way you, how you um, act in your, in your day-to-day life, whether it be work or personal, um, it's hugely rewarding over time because those improvements compound. Mm. Um, and if you you know have the fortune of living a long life, uh, they, they can be awfully powerful. So I've been very, very fortunate in selecting the right mentors. Uh, some haven't even lived during my lifetime, but um, you know I've, I've used it in a constructive manner 
and um, you know the advice I would have to people wanting to come into this industry or any particular profession is to use that framework of continuous learning um, and, and learning from people outside of your own profession and, and, and discipline. Um, that's another area that Charlie Munger talks about, mm, this inter interdisciplinary um, learning and using your, your framework as a lattice work where you're able to pull the ideas, the big concepts from the different disciplines um, because they can help explain very complex mm. um, and challenging questions. Whereas if you're only using one set of framework, it makes it in some instances impossible to, to solve for. Now that we know a bit more about your investing process and thought process, where do you see opportunities for Peters McGregor and for the Global Fund? Well, the opportunities are as they've always been. I think the um, the the attractiveness of investing in a portfolio of undervalued businesses that are competitively positioned, well financed, and run by very um, smart and and correctly incented managers is has always been attractive, and I think it's more attractive now than ever. Um, if if you can get diversification through owning you know, 20 to 30 of those positions in various currencies, then you're just able to switch off from the macro. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've always tried to do is really, you know, as a long-term investor, as a long-term owner of businesses, you're going to own these businesses through multiple different type of political parties, different elections, different economic-driven backdrops. Mm -hmm. So you're looking for businesses that will compete well, irrespective of which way the economic currents are, are moving. If your whole investment thesis is on a, mm. on a one-directional economic movement, then you're approaching uh, you know, your investment strategies quite different to the way we do it. Absolutely. So I think our approach offers a, uh, a peace of mind. Um, it's, a, it's quite a basic structure and, and most people can understand what it is we do and how we go about it. And so I think that's very appealing because remaining invested in productive businesses over the long term generally will give you the best return. The asset class has proven that o over extremely long periods of time. And to try and make macro calls, I, you know, I've not seen anyone who's been able to do that successfully time and time and again. You will always get a number of people that make the call right the last time but how much luck has played a role in that, one will never know. And as Peter Lynch says, more money has been lost by sitting on the sidelines waiting for the next crash or trying to make those macro calls than was ever lost by remaining fully invested through the periods and then going through the downturns. And if you've got strong businesses, you, you're going to do very, very well over time. I'm, I'm, I'm a big advocate of being aware of home country bias and I know many Australian investors <coughs> prefer to keep their investments closer mm -hmm. to home mm -hmm. whether that be the family home investment property and in shares I think Peter McGregor is and the investment process you follow is very similar to my own so how could people go about investing with you and learning more about what you offer well our website is, has, has got a lot of excellent content uh, petersmcgregor.com and there are numerous ways to invest 
either fill out an application form and come straight into the Peters McGregor Global Fund. You can access the, the Global Fund via M funds. So mm -hmm. if you have a broking account, you can simply just like uh, shares, just like shares, invest through M funds. If you if you run a super fund, you can can invest directly in the Global mm -hmm. Fund as well. The, the fund is qualified, it's registered, um, so the access is quite easy. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, and just one final question. If you could go back in time and, and tell something to a younger you about investing, what do you think it would be? <laughs> just one. <laughs> um, I'm sure you can have a few more. Well, look, uh, we've lived through, certainly the last two decades has been absolutely extraordinary with the development of the internet. That is changing the world in very meaningful ways. And if I were to advise a younger Wayne Peters, um, it would have been to be more open to the opportunities that the internet was going to present. And there's been a number of brilliant companies that have grown very, very strongly, and the roadmaps were laid out very clear. And, you know, we took advantage of some, but we could have taken advantage of, of many, many more. So remain alert. The world's ever-changing, and in many regards, it's changing quicker now than ever. But the fundamental principles haven't changed. Mm -hmm. So they can be learned, and if you're curious uh, and motivated, then there will be opportunities. It's, um, it just requires being alert, and then once you've done your work, having the temperament to take a position and remain with it in the long in the long haul. It's fantastic advice, Wayne. Thanks for joining me on the show. Hey, my pleasure. And happy Thank investing. You Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures.